Passion is defined as a strong and uncontrollable emotion. The pursuit of passion often brings joy and positivity to individuals and can have an even more profound effect on the people around them. As young students, whenever we ask questions about our future, the more experienced people in our lives always tell us to find and follow our passions. Yet for many of us, it can seem like a daunting and conflicting idea, leading to many people putting their passions aside in order to pursue a so-called idealistic life. Our 2023 school theme of Compass is closely linked with passion. For a compass to work, a person must first know where it is they want to go, and the compass acts as a support tool to keep us on track. On our podcast today, we are looking forward to hearing about our guest speakers' passions and how they have pursued them throughout their life. Welcome to the Penley and Assenden Grammar School PexCast. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in life that don't usually get talked about. I'm Alexis. I'm Laura. I'm Ronan. And I'm Lachlan. And we are all Year 12 students at Penley and Essendon Grammar School. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. And please be mindful that this episode does discuss some mature themes. Also, Penley and Essendon Grammar School acknowledges the Wurundjeri and Tanurong people as the traditional custodians of the lands upon which our school stands. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and affirm our commitment to the ongoing work of reconciliation. For more information about this podcast episode, please head to our website, pegs.vic.edu.au. Today, we are pleasured to welcome Alice Pung. Alice is an ex-PEG student who has achieved some outstanding accomplishments since finishing high school. She is a multi-award-winning author of several notable works, including the memoirs Unpolished Gem and Her Father's Daughter, the novels Lorinda and 100 Days, and the essay collection Close to Home. She's also the editor of the anthologies Growing Up Asian in Australia and My First Lesson, as well as the author of Meet Marley books Be Careful, Zhao Zin and When Grandma Came to Stay. For her significant contributions to literature in 2022 and in recognition of her achievements, she was delivered a State of the Writing Nation address and an Order of Australia medal. Alice is a practising solicitor focusing on pay equity and minimum wages. She is also an artist in residence at Janet Clark Hall at the University of Melbourne and has worked as an art instructor and school teacher. Wow, let's start back here. Welcome, Alice. Uh, thanks so much, Ronan. The theme of PEGS this year is Compass. We are perceiving this to be linked with the word direction. So, Alice, we have two questions for you today. What is your passion or what are your passions and what are some ways your passions have guided you to help people in the community? That's a great question and and a really excellent theme. So, as you know, I work as a writer and I also work as a legal researcher at the Fair Work Commission. And I guess those two jobs are very different, but when you asked this question, you got me to think about the ways they're linked. And they're linked by one thing, I think, which has always guided me in some ways, you know, (laughs) unpleasantly and in other ways quite life-changing. So my mother is illiterate. She's a, my parents are refugees from Cambodia. My dad survived the killing fields and my mother survived the aftermath of the Vietnam War. So both their educations were interrupted. So as a young child, I just distinctly remember doing things for my parents that quite a few of my friends didn't have to do. For example, read their insurance policies, 
get on the phone back when you're younger, where it was easier to get on the phone with telecom, which is now Telstra, and pretend to be your mum at the age of 14 and ask why you've been misbilled. You know, <laughs> you've been billed an extra $1.67, which was a big deal back then. But I just remember being about eight or nine and my mother shaking a jar of medication and said, you've got to read this carefully. I can't read this. And I was just playing, uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And she said, don't don't be so blasé about it. She said, look at this. And she shook it at me and she says, if you give me the wrong prescription, you could kill me, you know. And I thought, wow, I've got the power of life and death over my mother, <laughs> you know, just be, by being able to read. It was like a superpower I had. And I've never taken it for granted, this literacy that I have. So in my job at the Fair Work Commission, I do a lot of research, but we also do something quite, it's not radical, it should have been done centuries ago, but we change the language of the law so that your common person reading their employment contracts or their awards can understand these documents without having a lawyer or without having someone, you know, translate it for them essentially, even if you can read and write in English. So, and you don't realise what a gift that is, I think the statistics, 40% of Australians, and we're not talking about immigrants, but all Australians have a year 10 reading level and anything higher than that is is difficult. You know, so why do we write our most basic laws for, you know, a builder, a nurse, a dental assistant, a childcare worker in a way that they can't understand? So that's one of my passions. And that's, you know, <laughs> guided me to help the community so that's what I do in my day job, yeah. Yeah, perfect. I just had something going off that. Would you say your passion for writing started, well, when would you say your passion for writing started? Was it in high school? Yeah. Would you catch it? Oh, that, that's an excellent question too. So as a writer, there's two distinct things. So you, you are a writer and you write for your whole life and your life would be poorer if you never wrote for it. But then there's also being a published author, which is a distinctly different thing. But I'll talk about being a writer, which is just doing it for yourself. So I'm the oldest of four children. And as we were growing up, you know, in Cambodia, the elder sibling looks after all their younger siblings and you hang out with all your friends and they're all doing exactly the same thing. So there's nothing unusual about that kind of childhood. But you grow up in Australia in the 1980s in, in a house in Braybrook, you know, in a very nuclear family. And that's really unusual because you can't go to your friends' houses and you can't really hang out because your siblings are always in the way. And some of them are babies that need to be changed every two hours. So that was a big disjuncture. And I got really peed off about this. <laughs> and I was really angry and irritated at my parents. And my mum always told me that you can never shake a baby. You take a baby and you shake that baby. It's brain will rattle around its skull and that's the way she explained it to me (laughs) sorry to be graphic and they'll get brain damage so I had all this anger you know (laughs) I was like I'm I'm like nine years old I'm looking after a baby and then I was 14 and going to high point shopping center with a pram and the checkout chicks at Safeway and you know Coles would, would look at me with distaste in their eyes like why are you breeding like you know these refos come here and breed like crazy so I look like a teen pregnancy and so I kept these diaries only because I didn't have Facebook back then Facebook would have ensured that I never became a writer because 
when you go on Facebook, it's immediate. I could have typed Alison peed four times today. I had to change her. So frustrated. And 17 friends would have liked my post and, and I would have vented and that would have been okay. You know, It would have made life easier. Technology connects people. But because I was so alone, I kept these diaries. And when I went to university and I did a writing subject, I looked back on my old diaries as, as a child and I thought, these are pretty funny. I think I'll draw material from these to write. And that's how I came to write my first book. So that's how I've always written as, as a way of actually venting. <laughs> you spoke a lot about how you, your passion for writing for yourself. And then what I wanted to ask was, are there any other examples like of how that passion yeah. shifted to wanting to, to write professionally? and publish? Oh, of course. Yeah. So when I went to university, my writing was always quite private and it was almost like therapeutic. So I never thought anything of it. And I went to PEGS and the writing I did at PEGS, as you know, is quite high level and sophisticated. One of the best skills I learned in PEGS was how to write, you know, rhetorically and how to write argumentative essays and how to read the classics which would not have, I would not have been a writer, I don't think, if I hadn't had my time at PEGS, because not all schools teach you these things. A lot of schools don't. I went to five different high schools, and this was the school that taught me the skills to write. But there was always uh, kind of an imbalance, this, this quite formal writing that I did really well for school, and this private, frenzied, madcap writing that I did to release my feelings. And when I got to university and did my first creative writing subject, everyone else seemed more experienced. There was a mother who had children. There was a man who had joined the Labor Party. Even the students my age, 18 years old or 19, had travelled the world. And I'd grown up in two suburbs, you know, <laughs> Footscray and Braybrook, with the occasional bus rides out to the schools that I'd attended. So I thought I had nothing interesting to write. So... You know, it was the day before I workshopped my piece and I had written nothing. So I looked back on my old childhood diaries and I furiously wrote a, a piece that I, uh, you know, thought was just, yeah, <laughs> I had nothing to lose. It was about wetting my pants in kindergarten. And so we workshopped this in the creative writing class. And the worst thing that ever happened to me was, was absolute silent. And weeks, for weeks and weeks, we'd workshop these really intense, really personal really powerful pieces and here I am writing about pissing my pants and what was worse was there was a boy who started laughing in that silence like crap you know <laughs> and I was you know ready to say oh, I wrote this the night before it's just bad but when the teacher asked for feedback that boy put his hand up and said to be honest we we've had eight weeks of nervous breakdowns and you know disjuncture in the labor party and giving birth this is the first funny piece I've read. This, this is quite good, you know. And so at that point, I thought, oh, I've got a funny voice. So, so that's how I came to realise that there was perhaps something at that time, about 20 years ago, that was unusual. It was that you didn't have that many funny Asian Australians <laughs> writing. Now you have so many. But, yeah, back then I thought, oh, I've got a voice. So that's that's how I got my, you know, published writing voice. <laughs> Do you feel like your writing has helped the community at all through unpacking serious topics? If so, please share an example. Oh, thanks, Alexis. It's a wonderful question. Um, so my writing mainly revolves around the same three themes. Every single book I write, I'm like a one-track <laughs> record. 
Uh, so each book I write is very distinctly different, but there have been three things that have been a major influence on my life. The, the first one is class. The second one is, I guess, what we call race or ethnicity. And the third one is gender, you know, because I'm a female, Asian, Australian. So I don't set out to write about these things or to teach anyone a lesson about it. I just write about them as I live my life. But I've had letters from students and young adults all around Australia and around the world. And an example I'll give you is when my book, Lorinda, was published, which was about a young woman who goes to goes moves from one school to another quite an elite private school which is not pegs by the way you know every single private school thinks it's about them mlc lauriston college because the book sounds like but it's it's i made it up i made the fictional school lorinda up taking the worst aspects of all the schools that i'd been to as a student as a visiting author and as a teacher because i've taught at schools as well and so um this young woman wrote to me. So I get a lot of letters from Asian Australians, but this was a woman from Florida, from the backwaters of Florida in the United States who grew up in a caravan park with no running water at times because she lived with her single dad and rats running around. And she won a scholarship to you know this elite school where the children of Stephen King and people like that went to. And it was a baffling experience for her. And she talked about how she was considered all her life poor white trash. And this was the first book she'd ever read that really resonated with her, you know, <laughs> that really gave her a sense of identity. She's like, oh, this is my voice. No one, you know, you don't get a voice like this unless you're making fun of yourself. It's poor white trash. But this is a three-dimensional human being talking to her. And although we're not the same race or ethnicity, and didn't even live in the same country, there was a connection there. So we've been writing to each other since, you know, for about a decade now, and she's moved to Japan and, and really found her home there, <laughs> this beautiful white American girl who grew up in a trailer park, now speaks fluent Japanese. So the writing connects people in these ways as well. In my latest book, 100 Days, I made the very difficult decision to keep a word in there that is um, not a swear word but a word that you wouldn't use in everyday life to refer to your own child let alone people with intellectual disability so I use the word retard which is a bad word I also use the word chink I use the word slope I use the word slant because that's what they call Asians no one had an issue with that but I had a lot of librarians write to me saying that they were not going to stock my book anymore <laughs> you know some all girls schools teachers saying we, we really admired your work but this is, this is bad and anytime you use a word like that you should always explain it in the text but there's a difference between art and a difference between non you know <laughs> writing a textbook obviously but I had a student come up to me after a talk and she was South Asian and she said I'm a really good student you know Alice and her eyes got all glassy and she said but my mum in our language calls me that every day you know <laughs> she says it motivates me to do better she yells at me and stuff she goes, it doesn't bother me as much but she says I have a younger brother and he has an intellectual disability he has a learning disorder you can imagine what words they call him and I thought wow I'm glad I left that word in you know <laughs> so there's a real push in literature especially in America 
to block out unpleasant words. So in some schools, to kill a mockingbird is banned because they use the word N-I-G-G-E-R and they say that's bad, you should never use that word. But that word is not used in a derogatory sense to make everyone do that. It's used in art to show you the pernicious effects of racism. So as a writer, you know, I trust my readers enough to know that they'll come to their own conclusions and judge my characters accordingly. And so that's the feedback I've got. And that's how the writing has changed community standards, not by setting out to teach someone a lesson about how the use of the word retard is so terrible, but to put it in a work of art in a very specific cultural context. So it's not even said in English said by this illiterate, uneducated, impoverished mother working two jobs to her daughter in a moment of blind rage because her daughter's fallen pregnant. (laughs) And that is perfectly, you know, what my mother would have said if I got pregnant at 16. And it's resonated in many communities where that word is still acceptable and started conversations. So your book is not the last word. Your book is an invitation for a conversation and that's how I see my books <laughs> yeah right so when when you went out to write all your books and novels did you go out there wanting to teach people and about your experience and how they can learn off that and others like you in your situation oh of course any writer you hope to illuminate a different world for people one that they're not familiar with but I never set out to teach anyone a lesson mainly because in every book I write, I wouldn't have written it if I had answers. So every book I write, I have questions myself. You know, what's my identity? How come I've never belonged in this particular place or with these people or in this circumstance? Is it really racism when people who love you tell you that, oh, you're so pretty, you know, for an Asian person? Or I've <laughs> You have all these questions that you're trying to find answers for. And I don't, often have answers in my books either but I'm trying to tell a story the books that really failed for me when I was a teenager were the books where a well-intentioned adult has thought well I'm going to write about the theme of drugs theme of smoking the theme of racism and I'm going to teach a lesson because by the third chapter you think yep I know where this book is going I'm smart enough to know that drugs is bad for me that you shouldn't be racist it's the nuances of racism that I wanted to explore. So, for example, in one of my books, there's a group of girls who find one of the boys in the brother's school quite hot, quite attractive, you know, and they go up to him and they try and identify, you know, they don't know how to talk to him. So so they ask him something about, you know, his culture. And he says, oh, I'm not, I'm not Indian, I'm Sri Lankan. And the girl, because she's awkward and teenagers are awkward, she goes, oh, same, different. And he mutters, you know, racist bitch or something like that because teenagers are awkward and they say honest things like that. And you have knee-trigger reactions. If you're called a racist bitch, you, you get get angry <laughs> and, and she says, ooh, you stupid curry muncher, you know. <laughs> and so that's the scene that plays out. It, it plays out in every school all over Victoria and I don't edit my scenes. But there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there, about race, about culture, about our own uh, feelings of inadequacy on both sides. So these are the situations that my characters find themselves in. There's no lesson that I 
sum up in a few sentences. I leave it to the reader to make of it what they will. Within your books, you seem to explore the intricate themes of racism and those deeper complex themes through comedy. Do you think by exploring them through comedy, it makes it more younger audiences are able to understand these themes better or do you think that perhaps they actually detract from the deep meaning and the seriousness of these topics? Oh, that's that's a great question. So I've um, my first book was published when I was in my mid-20s and com- comedy for me was almost a shield. You know, if you make things funny, you don't have to go that deep into yourself and people criticise you can deflect it. But it was also a way to make racism palatable <laughs> to an audience because, you know, otherwise it'd be a very angry book because a lot of crappy things happen. Some idiot chucked a rock through our window. You know, people yelled out awful stuff to me when I was walking home. In my school uniform, a carload of strangers wound down their car door and, and yelled out, oh, me love you long time, which is a line from a Vietnam War movie called Full Metal Jacket that these GIs are told by a prostitute, you know, terrible things for a 16-year-old girl to sort of deal with. It didn't traumatise me or anything, but I put them in my books in a funny way and, and humour is the best way. I don't think it really dilutes things. I think if it's done properly, humour can actually reveal greater truths than if you top it straight, you know, and you can actually laugh at that carload of hoos instead of seeing them as the threat that they were when I was 16, which and they, they were an actual threat when you're 16, but when you're my age, you know, 42, yeah, <laughs> it's not, it's, it's something different. So you can still have the sinister element. And I've learned to use humour sparingly now because when I wrote that scene in my fictional book, 100 Days, it, it's not that funny. It's creepy as, <laughs> yeah. So, Alice, with all your successes, how have you managed to stay so grounded as a person? Oh, Laura, thank you. That's a lovely question. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say I'm particularly grounded, but things keep bringing me back to earth. Even, even you know, as, as a, a that example I gave you last, when I went to Pegs, I, I thought I was the champ, you know, <laughs> had this beautiful blazer. My mother was so angry because she'd never spent so much on an item of clothing for herself, let alone my father's business suit. But I had this wonderful blazer on, went to this beautiful grammar school in tree-lined Essendon where if I was walking down the street of Essendon to catch my bus 216 back, back to Braybrook, no one would ever yell anything out at me. You know, people were kind. You get to Braybrook and people were, you know, <laughs> thinking you're a teenage prostitute. It was such a, it's, it's such a break. So going to Pegs was was kind of idyllic you know <laughs> was a daydream that I, I thought wished never ended and we spent a lot of time in the library we didn't care what other students thought because my best friend Oslem her father drove taxis for a living and Jennifer's dad ran the lion dance restaurant in Williamstown so they're really hard-working girls so we hung out in the library to do our homework I had a really good group of friends I had quite a good experience in pegs but then you go to your normal life and you have to work and you have to look after siblings and translate for your parents. Your auntie's neighbour's tree fell into her house. She needs to write a letter to the council. So from a very young age, there was all these adult responsibilities. And then with success, you know, it gives you temporary happiness, but then life gets in the way as well. For example, I had children. 
my brother, who also went to PEGS, unfortunately died. And, uh, you know, with every success, life shows you challenges. So I've never had, I've been very fortunate to have had life ground me and to have had obligations towards other people. So now I feel quite settled in my career. You know, I've got a thriving career, but my parents are aging. So, you know, I spend a lot of time with them as well. I think people who don't have the responsibilities to other people, who can just focus single-mindedly on their career and their success, can get a bit, you know, like a one-track mind. So you're like, oh, all these glorious things are happening to me. So the very first time they fail might be in their 20s or might be in their 30s. And it's such a big deal. It's devastating and it shatters the self. Whereas if you know that you don't have a very strong sense of self because you have to give it away to other people, <laughs> you know, not much shatters. If, if someone writes me a terrible review, I don't care because I, I think I'm a good sister and mother and a good worker at the Fair Work Commission. So my identity is affirmed in other ways. This is why high school is so difficult for so many people. You're in one group of, or, you know, it's not one group, it's one mass of 200 people. And if they all think you're not funny, you might be a clown at home, but your identity is fixed. So I guess my advice in later life is to, people talk about community service, like it's a good thing to do for other people, but it's the best thing you can do for yourself because it shatters your sense of ego. And if you have a very weakened ego it doesn't mean you're a weak person it just means you can withstand you know one part of your identity stripped away or one part of your identity being criticized because you have all these other facets I guess yeah <laughs> that's a great question it's a very deep one thank you Laura thank you so Alice has anything about Peg stuck with you since you started your journey after high school yes in fact two things have stuck with me all my life which are two specific teachers I've had. So one, Miss Joan Carr, who I've been writing to, not by email, but by handwritten letters for over 20 years, you know, ever since I left PEGS. She's a very special teacher. She was my history teacher over two years. And I had a rough time at PEGS, not because of anything that happened in PEGS, but my personal life. My mum was very sick in my year 12 here. And I was a very private person and I didn't want that to bleed into my school life. So I told no one, didn't get any special consideration because I thought that was for very special people who had devastating things happen to them. I didn't realise that what had happened to me was devastating, but it was part of my life. But Miss Carr never, like, she took me aside and I wouldn't say anything. And she didn't question me anymore. But she supported me the whole year along with Miss Deary, who was our year 11 and 12 coordinator they made sure I was you know eating properly we're Cambodians so we don't have eating disorders your parents would kill you before they let you starve because my father had actually suffered starvation so it wasn't an I just was so stressed you know and so her son was also my class and so we, we keep in touch it's, it's a wonderful friendship intergenerational and my English teacher this is Asbury I keep in touch with. Now she's part of ABC Education. But in terms of the things I learned at PEGS, PEGS teaches you, well, it taught me, and you might take this for granted, how to speak, but I grew up in a culture where you don't 
adults speak to you and you're not meant to have much of an opinion, you know. <laughs> you know, So, you know, there was a generation where children should be seen and not heard, especially as a young woman. If you're opinionated, that's that's a horrible thing to be. You can't get yourself married off, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So Pegs taught me how to debate that having an argument wasn't necessarily people dysfunctional yelling at each other it was how to sustain a reasonable conversation and try and convince someone of something that you believe in and not all schools teach that you know <laughs> you, you might think they do but some schools are so hard pressed for resources and things like that that they're just teaching you the basics how to write a business letter how to go through your year 12 assessments so i had all this extracurricular things that enriched me as a human being so that when I got to university, and when you get to university and you study at Melbourne Law School, that law school is full of private school educated students from the other side of the river. I didn't feel too intimidated because I could hold a conversation and didn't freeze up and you know <laughs> things like that. So I, I did okay in law school <laughs> because of that, because of that grounding. And I had some friends who didn't do so well. That's why a lot of cultures don't get into the humanities or arts or law. It's much easier to study medicine or science where things are clear cut, where you don't have to convince someone of something else. If you've been brought up in a culture where you're, you're not meant to, you know, argue with people or convince them of anything. So, yeah, uh, Pegs taught me that my opinion mattered. It, it was a beautiful thing that happened. The teachers had time to do that. So did you do debating in school, Alice? Oh, I did a little bit of debating. I was never very good at it, but I think I did one or two debates. But that gave me a grounding, not just I wasn't in it for the competitiveness because I knew I would never win any debates. I was too late in the game. I was my opinions were in Kuwait, you know, it was just beginning to form. But it taught me the basics of how to structure an argument and and that really helped even in English and in literature when you write essays and that's a trick that some people have never been taught so when they get up to year 12 the argumentative essay is the hardest thing to write it really is you, <laughs> it yeah. is it is isn't it yeah. yeah but debating helps doesn't it yeah, yeah no exactly. we're, we're all in debating aren't we Oh, good on yeah, you. And do you still students. debate? <laughs> do you debate into school? Are you? Yeah. Oh, you guys are good. <laughs> yeah, so we debate with quite a few other schools. And yeah. it's it's really cool. It's 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 a competitive sport, I might say. Yeah. So yeah. you're up against different schools and you, you genuinely learn so much from them. And I think that's what PEGS provides really well. It provides extracurriculars, like you said, and their debating program is amazing. So very oh, thankful it's for so that. Amazing. And it's awesome yeah. to hear that it's been here and helping students for so long. So Alice, do you love what you're doing with your life at the moment? If yes, what, what drives you to go to work every morning? What gets you out of bed? Oh, that's, that's a great question, Alexis. What gets me out of bed is a really practical thing. My three kids, because I've got to get them ready for school. They're quite young, eight four and two one in childcare, one in kinder one in school and I do love what I'm doing which relates to the first part of your question because when I put the kids to bed it's quite late I stay up I stay up really late to do my writing because often that's the only time in the day I have these days to get my writing done is from 10 to maybe midnight which is when some students are doing their assignments so it's not that big a deal it's something I've done 
you know, <laughs> familiar with my whole life. So if I didn't love it, I don't think I, I would do the writing, but I, I love it. It's part of my life. Yeah, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. <laughs> so Alice, for someone who's achieved so much already with their lives, do you have any plans for your future? Oh, so because I have these three young children, it's a bit hard to write novels for adults now. I mean, I, I have ideas for one, but it's just so hard to find the time to sit down and write it. I'm really enjoying writing children's books, you know, so I'm writing quite a few children's books at the moment. The latest one is based on something I did when I was younger. Maybe Alexis and Laura did the same thing. Did you ever sew or, you know, yeah. make things out of? So it's about a little girl who's 10 years old and she finds household objects. Like she'll find three tea towels and she'll make a skirt out of them or there'll be a bed sheet with a hole in it and she'll use it to make hair ties and scrunchies for the school fate. So it's about a resourceful young girl who makes do with what she has and at the end of each one of these books there'll be instructions on how to make the things and the criteria is you don't need to buy anything from the shops and your parents don't need to supervise you and it's aimed for maybe the girl I was who was stuck between four walls or the children that I mentor who live in housing commission flats who really can't go out to Kmart to buy craft materials so they've just got to make do with a what they have around the house so you can quite you can make quite beautiful and things that almost look store-bought if you're ingenious enough to do these things so that's what is really driving me at the moment this series of books <laughs> now for the more important questions if you could have two superpowers what would they be <laughs> and why oh have you guys thought about it for yourselves as well oh definitely two oh good on you um, I'd be interested in what yours are. But I thought about this one because this is the best question I've ever been asked. Two, so, so I would like to fly uh, only because you can get places faster and, you know, there's less environmental impact. But I'd like it for other people too. So that because there's infinite airspace and there's a finite amount of ground space. So if you could fly, it would free up congestion and everything else. But I don't want to be the only person flying because scientists will shoot me down with drones and study me. It's not a good thing. <laughs> the other superpower, which I'd really love, is to be invisible because that's the best resource you can have as a writer is to go to secret places and eavesdrop on people. That's where you get your best stories from. So they're my two superpowers. <laughs> what about you? Mine would definitely be to, to teleport wherever I could go, I think. Oh I, oh, I should have stolen yours. <laughs> that would be so good. Personally, I'd love to control time. I think if I could hit the pause button in the middle of an exam, spend as much time <laughs> I could doing it, and then, you know, I'd be a perfect student. <laughs> oh, you could. Class. And then you can, like, write on your arch enemies exam. Exactly. Make them fail. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. Like, <laughs> but you didn't say you had to use it for good, did you? Well, good or evil, I think that's the whole thing yes. about superpowers. <laughs> Probably to read minds, that would be pretty cool. Oh, any minds? Or, like, do you have to focus on a particular mind? Oh, Otherwise it'd get noisy in your yeah. head, wouldn't it? If you just looked at someone like that's and so true. their nose or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. And, like, even, like, animals' minds, like, that would be, oh, that would be oh. good. Yeah. That would be so good. That You've got a premise for a science fiction story there, yeah. I think, Laura. 
I think I would be able to like like to be able to talk to any animal, any language. I think that would become very useful in life. Oh, you guys should write a superhero young adult series with all your superpowers. You, all you have to do is just give yourself a superhero name and there's four of you. Like this is the premise of a book here. Next up and coming <laughs> writers. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And finally, would you rather live in a world with no books or no internet? I, I think we, we all know the answer to that one. Oh, actually, I thought about this one because this is a really good question. And for me, writing isn't about physically putting the pen to paper or printing out the books because I grew up with an illiterate mum, as you, as you know, and she gets her stories from television and she gets her stories from listening and from you know, telling stories. So a lot of a lot of my best lines actually come from my mum. You know, my line in the book about my father surviving the killing fields, my, my mother said to me one day, don't waste food because your father, when he was starving and surviving those killing fields, he was so skinny that when he breathed inwards, we could feel his backbone through his stomach. And I thought, this woman knows her metaphors. She has no idea what a metaphor is, but she just speaks like a poet. <laughs> so that's my mum. And writing is a way of just conveying ideas directly through my mind to your mind. It doesn't necessarily have to be through a book because my books are on audiobooks for the deaf and blind and for people who don't want to read a book. So I reckon I'd say <laughs> the internet. I'd rather have a world with the internet, which has con- connected many people in the third world to literature that they otherwise wouldn't access, to job opportunities, to ideas and to if writing is just a way of conveying ideas the better method of con, you know connecting people through ideas is the one i choose and also if you didn't have books i guess the environmental impact would be less <laughs> you know i love books a lot but you know if you can directly convey one idea to another person not through books i'm all for that as well <laughs> So, Alice, yeah. I have to ask, a lot of your books or some of your books have included your parents. Have they read your books? Have they listened to the stories you've retold? And what are, the, what, are the, what are their opinions about it? Oh, Ronan, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. Because when you write about people you know, you're always worried that you'll work them off, you know. Yeah. So my, my dad has read my books and some of them he doesn't understand, like the teen pregnancy one, because I never got pregnant as a teen, and others he's sort of embarrassed by, like my first book. But they're really proud of me because I wrote my first book when I was quite young. I was 20 when I wrote half of that book. So when you're 20, you don't have the self-editor you do at 42. So uh, my voice was quite raw and earnest. And looking back, it's embarrassing. I never would have written that same book now so luckily I got published then because as you get older unfortunately you lose your earnestness and you lose you have a sense of decorum you you know you're a public person so that book was really special but my father just laughed about it and said look if if you'd show me the book before you got it published there are parts in it that I wouldn't let you publish (laughs) but that's unconditional love hey your parents love you no matter what and he knew it was written with great love and he said I, I think I know you better from reading your books. My mother still, she can't read or write my books. So she says, oh, just wait till the movies come out. <laughs> who knows <laughs> when that will happen. <laughs> so that's, that's the difference between illiteracy, where we think books are the most important things in the world because we value and treasure them. 
But if you can't read or write, movies are the most important way of conveying human ideas and moving you. And that's there's nothing lesser about movies, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not a literary snob or anything like that. I can't be. <laughs> that's a great question. Before we bring this episode to an end, we would like to thank you for sharing your story. Are there any last words of advice you'd like to provide our listeners? Last words of advice? Uh, yes, I. this has been one of the most wonderful podcasts I've ever had the pleasure of doing, and I mean that sincerely, and I've been podcasted by official people from the ABC, you know, <laughs> official podcasters, but this has been the most fun. I guess my word of advice is to be as creative and as charming and as remarkable as you four have been, uh, you've been giving. Podcasters don't talk about themselves because they've been trained not to. But the fact that you've made it so conversational is quite inspiring to me. Thank you so much, Alice. Enjoy the rest of the year and we look forward to hearing about your journey and continue to see where it evolves. Thanks so much, Alexis, Laura, Lachlan and Ronan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.